One of the most shaking days of Christianity's history was August 17th, 1662. Reason being, in England, some 2,500 preachers were thrown from their pulpit, another 3,000 were murdered, and 60,000 families were disrupted. Why, you ask? The act of conformity. These churches and pastors were considered non-conformist, and they didn't subscribe to all these like rituals and ceremonies of the Church of England. These non-conformists were more concerned about biblical Christianity. They were concerned about doctrine. They were concerned about gospel truth, making them, the pastors, and their sermons illegal. Now, though, what makes August 17th so, so uh, booming was that this was the very last Sunday these illegal preachers could preach. The very last Sunday. Now, just with that frame of reference, if you were there or if you were the preachers, what inked words, what diction, what prose would scratch your pages that day? This is my last Sunday, some of them before death. How would you grip the pulpit as the literal last words floated from your throat? A book called Farewell Sermons explains in vivid detail the overwhelming common threads of sermons that day had a very similar theme. Do you know what it was? What resounded that day was this, from multiple churches. What resounded that day was, run. Preachers who knew this could be the last time they spoke from a pulpit were telling their congregation, run. Now, it wasn't run from the evil government. It wasn't run and retaliate. Or retaliate. It, it wasn't run to a faraway land. It was run the race of this Christian life, knowing that that very life and your eternity depend on it. This is how Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, which we just read, illustrates this thing called Christianity, like a race. Now, again, before we go any further, how would you? How would you illustrate it? Even those here who don't follow Jesus, how would you illustrate Christianity? How would you describe it to somebody? Would some here illustrate it as a counseling center, like therapy gospel? Would some illustrate it like Burger King? Like, have it your way? Would some illustrate it like a crutch, a mask, a cult, a prison, a poisonous venom? Many of the big names of Scripture use metaphors to explain what this Christianity thing uh, is. Jesus himself loved agrarian, like, farming metaphors, which I just... I just love. I think it's very romantic. And he always talked in farming metaphors. Paul the apostle used military metaphors. But here, the author of Hebrews describes Christianity with athletic overtones, something I know a lot about. <laughs> I know a lot about. So this will be really good. But it is a, it's described as a race that must be run, not a walk. Not a skip, not a crawl, but heavy breathing, high knees, burning chest. An athletic engaged in doing all they can to finish this freaking race. Let us run this race with endurance. Let us run this race with endurance. Now, if we slow down and we let these words sink into our skin, 
then clearly there's something we must reach. Christianity is about reaching something. There's exerting effort. That's clear from these verses. In order to be faithful, there must be some exerted effort in Christianity. And if I can be so bold at this point in the morning, at this point of the talk, I'm just going to come out and just really go for it. Are there some here, or I believe there are some who are not exerting effort? Some of us are being carried down the, ra- the raceway. Some of us are being pulled. Some of us are being lifted high. I mean, whatever you want to say it, but friends, my hope and prayers today that you will all, that we will all be stirred to not have this burden of duty, but extreme delight with this race. So why this metaphor? Why would the author illustrate Christianity with this metaphor then and now? Why does it apply? What does it mean that running a race for our wallets, for our sexuality, for our dreams, for our marriage, for our Mondays? What does this race metaphor have to do with any of it? Well, perhaps we've been in Hebrews chapter 11 for too long. If you've been with us all through the fall of last year, we took 16 weeks to go over Hebrews chapter 11 and basically run up and down the aisles of the Old Testament trying to find these small moments, these big moments of faith for these Old Testament figures. But what this, we may have forgotten is, is through those 16 weeks, we may have forgotten that why Hebrews even exist. What is Hebrews' purpose in the Bible? Well, Hebrews was written to very, very weary people. I, I guess I don't think it's too unsafe to assume that there might be weary people here today, tired people here today. And these weary people were in danger of losing heart. They were in danger of running out of breath. And yes, this Hebrew Jewish community was being persecuted for following Jesus, but, and pay close attention, it transcends that. They were allowing their persecution, their tribulation to define reality, to define Christianity, and to find God and Jesus for them. So then this unknown, mysterious, eccentric pastor slash author of Hebrews, who we affectionately call the stranger, wants to lift theirs and ours imagination beyond what we can see with our eyes. Hebrews is trying to lift us above our own emotions. The book of Hebrews is trying to lift us above our own fears to a truer meaning of following Jesus. And friends, that is a race. That is a race. Again, look at verse one again of chapter 12. This word race in its original language is everything. Here's it in its original language. Pop up that one screen. What does this word look like? If you guys can see, it's a little low. What does this word look like in English language? Agony. You nailed it. That's what this means. This word race means. Run this agony. Now, who here likes to be athletic? Three people? <laughs> this is the church I love. Now, who here likes, like, don't be afraid. Who here likes, like, hey, Monday night people? Does anybody like, okay, there we go. Who here plays, do do grown men play football if they're not professional? Is that a thing? No, okay. Bowling leagues here? (laughs) Who here goes running on like Tuesday morning with an iPod cast thing in their ear? Four of you. Who here has a treadmill? (laughs) It's a clothes rack, isn't it? It's a a closet, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, you put your, yeah. All, I mean, athleticism, you, you poor, poor suckers. Like, you believe in it. No, but and the truth is, any athlete can tell you 
or any true form athletic or whatever it is can tell you, uh, especially runners, that there is something called breaking through the wall. Especially runners know this. See, for marathoners, that phrase is both a blessing and a curse because it means that you're almost there, only like 6.2 miles to go. But that also means that the toughest part is yet to come. This Hebrew community is being told what is necessary to break through, what it means to be an enduring runner in agony. Or as Paul in the New Testament says, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. What they're talking about is not aimless running or wandering or going backwards. It's running with direction. This is how one breaks through the wall. And he inspires us by telling us that something outrageously unique in these sets of verses. He inspires us with three things. Look at verse one again of Hebrews 12. Therefore, Andre, you know what that means. Whenever we see the word therefore in the Bible, we have to ask, Andre, louder, son. What is it there for? (laughs) Anytime you come across this word in the Bible, we must stop and ask, What is this there for? The word therefore is always a hinge in scripture that is like an open door to greater conclusions. So why is this starting off in Hebrews chapter 12? This is the very first word we see. So then what it's trying to do is conclude all of Hebrews chapter 11. All the stories, all the 16 weeks that we spent, stories of Abel and Enoch and Moses and Rahab and Samson and so on, And then it goes on to say this, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So Hebrews 11, our time in Hebrews 11 was not this fun little story time at the library type things where we talk about those people, men and women of old. It was all there to make one particular exhortation, to say one thing strongly. Theologian William Davis calls Hebrews chapter 11, the alumni. They are the alumni, giving our imaginations this invite to imagine a great race in a coliseum. It wants us to to see that this is not a lone mountain hike or a lone mountain run or an Ironman, which is you and the road for miles. He's trying to invite our imaginations to a stadium, a cloud of witnesses. And the seats are filled like this with spectators. But these spectators are unique. Why? Why? because they were once runners. Abel, Moses, Rahab, Samson, once runners, the alumni. Runners who had, whose race has ended, they've left the track and field, they've gone into the stands and they're cheering you and they're saluting you and they are clapping for you and they are doing this, they're exhorting you, they're encouraging you. Now though, cloud of witnesses is a huge, beautiful sentiment of thought and it's awesome but obviously there is no actual heavenly coliseum. We don't see that anywhere in scripture. So yes, they are witnessing, and there's this idea of spectatorship, but it's far more about them all giving testimony to the value of a certain way of living life. That's what we are to witness. The stranger wants us to look at what they are looking at. These cloud of witness, don't look at them. Look at what they're looking at is the point he's trying to make. You tracking with me? These are more witnesses of the power of faith. They are more witnesses of the wisdom of faith. They are more witnesses of the righteousness of faith. They are more wisdom of the blessings of faith. 
Essentially, their faith has been vindicated. Their trust in untrusting circumstances has been validated. And now their lives serve as a cheer for us to run triumphantly this Olympian marathon commitment to Christ. Now hear me. What we're going to get into now is break down these verses. But this is only for Christians. Hear me very clearly. This is only for Christians in 2019 who want to make great spiritual distance. Who is that today? If you're not interested, get on Instagram or or zone out or whatever you want to do, because this is for people, this is what we're going to go over, people go, I want to take this seriously. For those here today who are consumed with resolutions, where does running the race come into place for you? For those here who don't give two poops about resolutions, how does Hebrews chapter 12 forcefully challenge you to self-assess your pace in Christianity? So for the next few moments, we're going to run right through this. No? (laughs) Hours and hours I agonize to put these jokes in place. Bryce, you promised me a laugh. Liar! (laughs) The things I do for this church. Verse 1.1, the stranger gives us three ways to run well. And oh mama, they're wonderful and they're practical. The first one, verse 1 again. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Are we tracking that? Are we following to what it just said? We run by laying, by ridding, by throwing our sin and our what? Weights. So if it was just sin, it would say that. But it says sins and weights. Hmm. I remember this famous line from one of those, these historical books that I read a while ago about Alexander the Great, where his army has taken way too much plunder, and they were starting to lose battles by carrying all of this weight. And it was this great stuff. It was gold, and it was weapons, and it was all this fine material. And so Alexander the Great says this, put it all in a freaking pile and burn it. All this incredible things, he said, burn it all. And there's the famous line says this, It was as if wings had been given to them. They walked lightly again, and victory was assured. The author is saying, yeah, if you want to run well, stop doing stupid stuff, but it's saying so much more. So track with me. Sin is about laying aside things which are contrary to God. Laying aside weights could be seen as laying aside things which are contrary to oneself. I really want to make a joke right now about losing weight in the new year, but I'm not going to do it. Again, the things I do for you. Any encumbrance that hampers spiritual progress, it's saying lay it aside. Anything that hampers spiritual progress, get rid of it. So what is that for you? You ready? I have no idea. I have no idea. So yes, it could be social media, which is not a sinful thing, but it's not a helpful thing for you. Yes, it could be a a relationship that you're in. It's not a sinful thing, but it could not be a helpful thing for you. Yes, it could be certain theologies. Yes, it could be certain habits, certain people. This weight idea is catered to you. So Hebrews chapter 12 is beckoning you and me to assess. 
For this church that the stranger is preaching the book of Hebrews to, I think it's safe to say that their communal weight dragging them down was the weight from their past and formal legalism and old ways. But that right there should haunt us. That should scare us. Because what it shows us, as it sort of shapes this formless void of weight, it's showing us that weight can be really good, even spiritual things. Something for which one could be praised for by in the church. So then, what might your weight be? This one takes a bit of a discovery process. Asking discipleship, asking friends to speak into it. Now, when it talks about sin, and I really want to hear this, and I, I want this to be more of a pastoral, collective church moment, I want us to notice that it's talking about things when it says sin. Sin is anything contrary to God. And it's talking about it tangling us up. I love the author's choice of words here. It says, cleans. It says, cleans, or other translation, entangles. Like a runner whose shoes are untied. Or like a runner who has fabric hanging from his waist and it's wrapping around his or her legs. So clinging means it's close. Sin means it's close. It forces itself upon you and upon me and it violates you and it violates me. It mingles with you and it mingles with me. And it motivates certain actions and it affects certain actions. This year... May you or may I not believe the lie that sin can be categorized into separate portions of our lives. That is a horrific, dark lie. Meaning, we can draw the line and say, my addiction to pornography only affects this aspect of my life. Lie. My gossip only affects my working relationships. My idolization, my fraud, my stealing, my feelings about this will only affect those upon which I do it. That is a lie. See, like the great kraken, its arms reaching and pulling and dragging and wrapping itself around all of our purposes and plans. So as much as even possible, our best deeds are still not untangled from sin. I want to end this, that little blurb if I may, because over the years, what's interesting is I've done many premaritals. I'm doing some today, and it's one of my greatest joys. I've done many premaritals. I've done lots of drama counseling. I've done lots of discipline counseling. But one of the most misguided, unhelpful, and for some, even hurtful questions in the race is this. Is that a sin? What these hearts are asking is how far can I go? Can I do this? Can I do this? Now, there's a lot of okay with that, and truthfully, I get it. But if I search the Bible, that's not a question Scripture presents us with. So I want us, collective church, to lay aside the inquisition and start asking, does it help me run? That's what we're going to start doing in 2019, collective church. Does this help me run? Point two, verse one again, read with me, should be on the screen. And let us run with endurance, with endurance, with endurance, the race that is set before us. We run by enduring. Philosopher M. Scott Peck, in his wildly famous book, The Road Less Traveled, who's read it? Anybody? Really? Just... 
What? Oh, I thought it was more famous than it was. I haven't read it either. I just pretend I'm reading. I, I just thought it was more famous. I've never read any of these books I talk about. But what it starts with in this very famous book, which I love, starts in this book, it starts with three little words. Do you remember the three words that it starts with? Oh, no? Huh. Impactful book, I can see. Yes. It starts with three, these three words. You ready? Life is difficult. Peck said this about his famous introduction. He said, the root of most persons' troubles lies in the fact that they do not think life should be difficult. They resist the work which is part of life. Life is difficult. To run is difficult. This race is difficult. This church is difficult. Discipleship is difficult. Do, you, do we know this? If this is your first time here and you're wondering if I should make Collective Church my home church and you're thinking this is an escape from another church or this is going to be better than this or blanking me that, nah, it won't be. We're just as difficult. Discipleship, is, community is just as difficult here. See, nobody has to tell long-distance runners, hey, you know, that's going to be hard. Did you know that's going to be hard? Nobody has to tell them that. They know, and for a lot of runners, Ashley, you're a runner, for a lot of runners, that's even part of the reason you do it, right? Yes, the agonizing part. They expected that there would be moments that they want to endure. Endurance here means patient, sustaining loyalty. Write that somehow small in your Bible. Patient, sustaining loyalty. So yes, the stranger is giving all of us a wrecking ball to break through the wall of spiritual agony and dry spells. But to be fair, we're all adults. And we all get it, Casey, yeah. Perseverance and endurance. And we've talked about it a whole bunch in the book of Hebrews. But what I don't think we're quite there yet as a church, what I don't think we're quite there yet as a church, is helping one another endure. You see, there are two types of clouds of witnesses. Those who've ran before us, and those who run with us, you and I. This is the other cloud of witnesses. Church, you, me, are we at the point yet where we believe wholeheartedly that if I didn't have you, that if we didn't have each other, we will not endure or finish this race? If we're not at that point yet, our theology regarding the church is off. We must be at the point going, if I don't have you, you don't have me, we will not make it. Now, I've never ran a marathon, 5K, 5G, whatever it's called thing. <laughs> but guess what I did do this week? I did do some research about running from my couch in a robe with Del Taco. This, uh, this is the honest truth. <laughs> And I found out, again, Ashley, you're the only runner I've ever heard of. You tell me if this is wrong. But I found out that there are unspoken rules of what it means to be a cloud of witnesses to runner. In other words, how do you support runners so that they can endure? Okay? And these are all taken from verywellfit.com. These are real. And I've perverted them all to make biblical points. Okay? So I thought I'd share them with you. Here they are. But runners... I guess, need clear, present, and noisy supporters. Do you know why we have our rhythms at Collective Church that we do? Because we need clear, present, noisy supporters. If you're not present, 
What does that mean for my life? If I'm not present, what does that mean for your life? Love in Los Angeles is so confusing. We chalk it up to affirmation. We chalk it up to support in some wild ways. But you want to know the truth about love? Love is most proven in presence. I will be there for you. Whether I disagree with you or not, love is most proven in presence. Now, we need noisy supporters. Next. Now, I guess in runs, I guess there are water stops and food stations where prepared supporters come and hand you jelly beans and orange slices, I was told, and french fries. I'm not sure what food they hand you, but that's what the rumors. But they expect, they come prepared to support the brothers and sisters to endure a run. They come prepared. Could you imagine a collective church where people came prepared to support one another spiritually, emotionally, and physically? The church has always been a place where people know they can come and get their needs met and receive orange slices, and that's true, and it'll always be that way. But then imagine, though, if those same people who were fed also started preparing themselves for others so they can endure. What if the stuff that the church has been trying to supply you with is so that you can then go and comfort with the same comfort that you've been comforted with? Imagine that type of church. Romans 12, 13 says, this is speaking to a church, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Supporters who contributed by showing up, that is half the battle. Or by saying in 2019, I'm not only going to receive this year, I'm going to give. I can give by setting up chairs, discipling others, giving to each other, listening, praying over one another, having couples and singles over for dinner. We need to start having couples. We need to start having more single people over to dinner. It needs to happen. I would also say this, supporting young families with kids, with meals. What about the younger asking the older here? And we don't have that many older people in our church. And that's a darn freaking shame. We want older people. Diversity not only skin, but it's also an age. We want older people. But younger people seeking them out and asking them questions, help, guidance. Older people making the time for them. We also need, by supporting and contributing for different members of certain ethnicities, sitting down and asking other members of certain ethnicities, open and edifying questions. We have a lot of plans this year regarding race and the unity of the church. A lot of very sweet plans, but it involves us going, I'm going to make open and edifying questions, time, and availability. That's, those are the type of orange slices I want to eat. Those are supporters I want behind the tape making noise. And I'll wrap up this little endurance section with this last thought from very, very felt, very wellfit.com, whatever it is. They encourage that those noisy supporters, whatever, they encourage them not to yell the wrong thing. They say, don't shout, almost there. They say, don't shout, not far to go. They say, don't shout, two miles, I think. Don't do it. Unless they can literally see the tape, don't say, not far, don't do it. There is nothing more frustrating to a marathon runner than bad information. 
There are few things more damaging to our endurance run than bad information. Meaning, may we know what we're talking about when we step into somebody else's life or we step into a discipleship group and say, you shouldn't do this, you should do this. May we know we're talking about seeking to give wives biblical counsel. And the only way to do that is if we enact everything else we've been talking about by showing up and being present and spending time in God's word. May we not give bad information going, dude, you can totally sleep in the same bed with your girlfriend. That's fine. You can't have sex with her, you can sleep in the same bed with her. What? No. Let's not give unwise, unbiblical counsel. May we know what we're talking about. That's an amen moment. Where was I? (laughs) All right, I want to end our talk with the last point of how we're supposed to run well, this marathon commitment to Jesus Christ. And I love this point. And we do that by looking. The Bible tells us to look at Jesus. I can't see Jesus. It tells us to look at his race. It wants us to look at his race. Look at his endurance. Look at his laying aside of weights and sins. Look at verse two. Read it with me. Looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. Look to Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Again, if you ask any runner, they'll tell you that in a race, one must lock their gaze. One cannot like, run straight if eyes are squinting to this and to that. That wastes strength. That makes for crooked running. But just to read these verses, to be honest, to understand this, is then to cut us wide open. This cuts us wide open, meaning one mustn't then gaze, apparently, at their own resources. One mustn't gaze at their own beliefs, at their own power to save, their own defining of authority, sexuality, theology, or purpose. Look to Jesus for these things. To try and perfect this thing we call faith, then we have to have attentive, straightforward, looking at the source. The founder and perfecter. You know what that means? The starting line and finishing line. You know what that means? It means that Jesus is the champion, pioneer, originator, pathfinder, and leader of this thing we call Christianity. But notice what it doesn't say. Jesus, the example doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. Because if Jesus was the example and the stranger was like, run as fast as Jesus, run as hard as Jesus, run as far as Jesus, you know what we'd do right now? We'd lock up shop. We'd all go get some El Polo Loco. We'd say, this is impossible. It doesn't say that. Now, obviously, Christ is an example for our lives, but we get so tied up in thinking that we have to win this race. We have to win it. I have not said a single thing this morning about winning a race. I'm talking about finishing. Hebrews 12 is saying, nah, stop worrying about winning. Know that he has won. This changes the entire access of our being upon which, how we pivot. The good news of Jesus Christ is that he ran the agony race for us. 
So what we must do is remind ourselves continually of the one who blazed the trail, because if we don't, then we are going to grow weary, fatigued, and forget why we're even on this trail at all. We must preach daily sermons ourselves that it is far harder and it was far worse for Christ than it will ever be for us. I wonder if we're a church that believes that there is valid, very real power in contemplating his sufferings. If I slowed my role and actually considered his sufferings, there's power in that. Because get this, this is gonna make sense. Track me, this is beautiful. Christ was far lonelier on his race. He was far more rejected on his race, far more hated, had a horrible, was given a horrible reputation, persecuted to the point of a humiliating, naked, embarrassing death. An execution strategy so damning for society's most pathetic that people near and far saw it and went, gross. But what makes any of that a perfecter of our faith, where the real power comes from, and get this, is he trusted that God the Father, that God the Father would take this running and he would restore, renew, reclaim, and redeem. Guess what? That's faith. So Jesus this whole time has enough faith to go, you're going to do something with this absolute shame, sham of an execution. That's a perfect faith. A faith despising, humiliating shame to the point that he doesn't even detour. A faith that makes the oncoming suffering a joy. So then, Dare I say that this is the theological edge of gospel truth, which takes the longest for us Christians to permeate this. To know and believe that all who come before and after Christ will get a perfect three-minute mile, will receive an Olympian gold. Because there is no way that this Christianity thing for you or for me, this race thing, becomes our joy, a delight, or is life-giving if we do not believe already that we have been placed in the winner's circle because of Christ. To not believe that would be absolute fear. Afraid that if I don't run well enough, fast enough, hard enough, I will not be accepted. I will not be brought in. But yet, if we understand Hebrews chapter 12, collective church, perfecter, exclamation point, finisher of the faith race. Any attempts of running a race for accomplishment is just as helpful as running the track when the Olympics are over. I did it! Nobody's, it's pointless. Starter and finisher of our faith. And once that's in place, everything else we can accept and experience. So I'll end with this. We've been talking all morning about how to run. And I want to end with hopefully a strong, hopefully inspiring and beautiful motivation to run. See, this athletic metaphor is is far too perfect. The stranger is brilliant. He knows what he's doing. But athletes then competed to win a prize. Athletes today compete to win a prize. But in ancient Greece or Rome, you know what they would win? They'd win a... um, a laurel crown, a very pretty, beautiful laurel crown. Now, the crown itself wasn't worth much, but receiving it, wearing it, that changed everything. 
So you only had fame then or wealth then from birth or athletic, athletic games. It's the only way you got fame or wealth. So if you won and you had a laurel crown, you entered a whole new realm of nobility. And the highest absolute honor of any athletic who won a game, get this, was sitting with royalty after the victory. They'd say, come up here. And they'd welcome you and you would have a seat right there. That was the prize, to sit next to them. Knowing all of that, let's read verse two one more time. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, the founder and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and what? And to seat it at the right hand, the throne of God. So the event, the encouragement, the encumbrances, the endurance, the example, to keep our eyes on him, knowing then in the end, like him, we too shall sit with God the Father. Collective church, myself, and scripture can offer you no greater motivation than that. Amen? Let's pray.